John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 090.LK1920, certificate number 44181. The back of a napkin. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. Now, if you haven't already listened to the omnibus entry on the front of a napkin, <laughs> you might want to, you're going to be lost here. The back of a napkin is kind of a euphemism that we use in rock and roll. What is the, what would you say the back of a napkin might mean to no, a rock and roll band? For, it's just for rock and roll people. I'm oh, sorry. You, you're not even allowed to. Yeah, no, can't, can't let, can't let you behind the curtain. What's the, can't what, let you behind the napkin. What's, what's the lowest qualification of rock and rollness I could do to attain? Like, Boy. If I had a SoundCloud, could you tell me? How much more rock and roll would you have to be in order to qualify as rock and roll? I'm, well, just, I mean, I'm trying to think. It's a continuum. Mm-hmm, like, I look mm-hmm. like a guy in a math rock band. Mm, do you? Yeah. Yeah, I think I so. I mean, you look like a guy that goes to a math rock show. <laughs> but you don't have that, you don't have the sort of dead-eyed look of somebody that plays music for a living. Uh, oh, I see. I'm too, I'm too sprightly. <laughs> yeah. They're too, they're, your you know, laugh lines are full of aren't joy. There, aren't there jovial, sprightly people in rock? Oh, not Like really. not, like Tom York. No, I, I'm, it's just, all, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Just fun guys, just having fun. Who is the sprightliest guy in rock? The sprightliest guy in rock? Uh, is, it, is it like Elton John, but in like 1970 and Coke is... Uh, uh, no, see, that's the thing. If it's, if it's, if your sprightliness is, is cocaine powered it's not real sprightliness that's what i'm saying you have such a a clear-eyed such a genuine yeah just Tom like Bombadil like every morning like wow the sun is out it's that's not how i'm america's youngest spry man <laughs> even normally you have to be in your 70s to be described as spry but even the happiest rock person unless they suffer from a from like a like a delusion uh, unless they're like uh, specially abled um, there's no way that you could that you could play music even for three weeks without losing something uh, uh, from your soul. What about Moby? Instead of Coke, he has like um, super he has dark. Like, he has um, what uh, in, uh, whole grain flowers and. Uh, but look at him. Kale. Look, look into his eyes. Look into Moby's <laughs> eyes, and you will see the abyss. As a musician, do you? Where would you? Where would you say your ideas come from? Novelists famously hate being asked, fiction writers famously hate being asked where they get their ideas. Do you get asked that as a lyricist? 
Oh, uh, maybe. Um, <clears throat> I guess but, I guess musical ideas too, not just lyrics. But we we talk about it as songwriters all the time um, because there are there are as many ways to to search for ideas as there are you know writers. And, and a lot of us sort of plod along or 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 do that um that Randy Newman style of like sit yourself down at the piano every day at eight o'clock in the morning and you work until four or work until noon and uh and if you just produce the ideas the spice will flow mm-hmm. if you just sit there and and crank. They tell writers that too. Just like sit and type on a keyboard. The physical motion of typing nonsense words will eventually turn into coalesce into an idea i don't i've never tried that I, it seems like a hassle to go back and erase it all <laughs> i feel like the the songwriters i know that are prolific that way um where they write 80 songs in a year and then pick the best 10 or just write 80 songs in a year and release them all the bob pollard model that's right and there are a lot of songwriters that do that and you always wish that they had like a bill berry in the band <laughs> who was like mm, this one but not that one <laughs> uh but i'm somebody that wakes waits for inspiration to strike and uh, I definitely feel like there there are half a dozen songs I've written over the course of the years that I cannot account for. They just came down from the sky, kind of fully formed, or if not fully formed, then then I, <clears throat> you know, my pen was moving as fast as as it could to keep up with the with the inspiration. And in cases like that, it feels like you were just wa- you walked into a a low cloud that had. All of this it had a song in it. Yeah, it had a song in it. Would you, you call it like, a SoundCloud? Hmm, I wouldn't have until now. But Check out my SoundCloud. It's may- a low-hanging, foggy thing <laughs> that feeds feeds melodic and lyrical ideas to my brain. But that feeling, I mean, we we do talk about, and I don't know. I'm sure that writers have this too. That that moment of inspiration where it really feels like um, it. Uh, it like, dis- like the idea already existed. Yeah, it and- disabuses you of the uh, of the um, the ego of being a creator. You know, you, right. you you feel like, wait a minute, this song was always there, and I got tapped to be the stenographer, but it couldn't. You know, this this can't be a product of just me and my inspiration. It's too. It, it it arrived too fully formed. Do you have any good ideas that have like an origin story where you like remember where you were or the thing you saw or the conversation you overheard or whatever it was? Yeah, I mean the the uh, the commander thinks aloud, which is my song about the space shuttle um, crash, reentry crash. Um, I was sitting, kind of reading the newspaper. There'd been a uh, that Alaska Airlines crash where the jack screw screwed up and the plane kind of flew around off the coast of California. The pilots knew that there was a problem, but they couldn't quite figure it out. And they were like talking to the tower and, and, um, they, they, uh, they were losing control of the airplane really slowly and really gradually. And then I guess, you know, they forced the wheel or something and the jack screw broke and the, the plane just flipped upside down and went straight into the ocean. And, um, and I was just putting myself in the, trying to put myself in the airplane, right? Just that feeling of like, there's something really wrong with this airplane, but we can't get off of it. And so the, the, the idea that you could be on a, on a, you could be in a slow motion crash yeah, 
and know I'm, it was coming. Because that's what you don't want. Yeah. You want, it to, you want it to happen like that. If you're playing cracks in half in the middle of the air in the middle of the night and everyone falls 30,000 feet to the ocean, <clears throat> you're going to have only a, a few seconds of terror. But to be in a plane that's like, well, you know, this, is, this is, probably isn't going to end well. And just imagining what, what that would be like, how you would experience it. And I sat, I kind of got up from the couch and walked over to the piano and started playing this sort of um, what what to me is this very typical plodding three chord progression that I kind of <laughs> use in every don't, shh, other don't, song. Don't, don't tell people clong, that. Clong, 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 and uh, and the song just just uh, I wrote it in in the space of an hour, and it was it was about the space shuttle all along. But it was but that that's kind of the you know, the ultimate, uh, example of like a very professional trained crew, just watching things come apart. You know, I imagined one red light went on and then a second red light went on and they were like, Oh, we should, you know, tapping the instrument panel. Like, <clears throat> let's see if that's probably just a that's thing. Just a light. And then another red light came on and, you know, do you know it's a good idea when you have it? I mean, I feel like that's a very important skill. The meta knowledge of, I had an idea and I can rate it on a scale of promising to lame. Except that you can often follow what feels like a great idea up to 80% of completion. <laughs> and then like a little gremlin of doubt jumps in front of you and is like, no, this is a bad idea. It, it just occurred to me a songwriter can abandon that. And, you know, if I'm 80% of the done with the book, <laughs> I've just got to slog through and deliver the deliver the damn book that I now have terrible doubts about. It's the worst part, I think, of being a songwriter that you can abandon it 80% of the way. Because I think if you if you complete it, what 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 will happen is that gremlin transforms into you could make this better if, and you, but you have to get to the end before you can make it better. Yeah, and I just I've abandoned way too many things that probably would have been. Um, good songs, or or maybe even my favorite song, just because that gremlin was like, "You're stupid." I'm in the middle of writing a book now, and I don't know if anyone will ever want to read it. But I have like seventy thousand words, so I'm not gonna, uh, you know, I'm not gonna listen to the gremlin. Is it? Is it? Ken Jennings reads his uh, his favorite romantic poetry out loud. <laughs> what What is the topic of the it book? It is actually no. It's a book about the. I've been working on this book for a lot. <laughs> Oh, this five book. years. Yeah. It's just a travel guide to the afterlife. It's yeah. like a history of human views of the afterlife from ancient Sumeria all the way up to the good place. This is a very Ken Jennings book, and it's going to be wonderful. People are going to love this. Book. But I, you know, and I remember the moment. Like it, it, there was actually an idea moment where I was in an airport bookstore in one of the SeaTac satellites, and you, were, you you went up to the the lady at the counter and said, "Do you have any book on the history of the afterlife?" No, sir. No such book has been written. Hmm. If you were an author, you could help us, but you don't look like one. You look like you're in a math rock band. <laughs> no, I just saw a copy of like a thousand places. What's the, what are those books called? A thousand places to see before you die or whatever. You know, oh, the, you know yeah, that series. The bucket list books. Yeah, just bucket list style books. And I was like, that should be a thousand places to die before you see. Huh? And, oh. and then I was like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> that actually could be a book, and it would be about. It would treat the afterlife as a travelogue. You know, like here are some of the highlights of uh, of Valhalla, and here are some of the highlights of purgatorio and i and, you know and in like 10 seconds i like i had the you know and it was the rare thing where it's a high concept idea this i think this is actually the problem with why people think they don't have ideas is because maybe the media uh, have led them to think that ideas have to be some 
Shark Tank pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. You, you know what I mean? Like it's self-explanatory. It's Uber, but for ghost hunting. Or, or oh wow! It's the, Did you just come up with that? I'm going to write that down. <laughs> or you know, like we see it with movie scripts too, right? Like that's that's kind of what we've learned about Hollywood is you you get a million dollar check if you say it's like the Expendables, but they're all former child stars, or, or right. you know, like right. and that's the then it writes itself. Um, and really, I think that the challenge is convincing people that you do have good ideas; they're just very low level ones. And I know it's it's often said that it's. M- like the creative lifestyle is really more about like mindfulness and intention, like being aware of those things and writing mm. them down. Have you ever been like a notebook guy? Um, <clears throat> for years, I carried around a spiral bound notebook and wrote in it uh, all the time, just full of ideas and and terrible, terrible writing and all of my, um, I don't know, thoughts on the world. And then at some point I stopped carrying a notebook and I don't know whether it was... It wasn't the advent of the cell phone. It was prior to that, but I but I gradually I think what happened was I kept travel journals and for many years I was actually it felt like I was just traveling but but living in Seattle the whole time. Yeah. But I was always on a journey of some kind and then one day I became just domesticated enough that I woke up and was like, I don't need to bring that notebook with me. I know where I'm, I'm going to be back here in an hour. I'm going to go get 12 dozen donuts. <clears throat> and I, and I never picked it up again. But you don't feel the, I was at just last week, I was at a car dealership because my son is now 18 and looking at a car for college. And, uh, this, do you need a car for college now? You don't need one. It depends on where you go, I guess. I never but had a car in college. He's thinking he wants to have like rugged, uh, adventures like he wants to oh yeah you know drive into the cascades and go fishing or whatever with his newfound collegiate independence let, let me recommend a 1972 volkswagen bus let me write that down <clears throat> um i think it's called volkswagen a, a 1972 volkswagen bus will almost certainly catch on fire somewhere in the north cascades <laughs> and then he will learn an important lesson about uh air-cooled engines but also about uh, his own you know fortitude Intestinal fortitude. While we're waiting to talk to the finance, he know he went with a he went with a Subaru. He, oh, he knows what he That's knows fine. he knows what Northwest Life requires sure, now. A Subaru, sure. Uh, Does it have a uh, Wagmore Bark Less uh, sticker on it? It will. <laughs> <laughs> Keep Portland weird. He uh, while we're waiting for the finance guy, you know they're icing us out in the out in some lobby, right. and there's a bunch of people kind of milling around who were I think mostly there for the service desk. They're waiting for their car to get fixed, and one is a teen. Or, you know, he's, he's this kind of extremely blonde, um, maybe 19-year-old in a white T-shirt, probably of a Slavic type. Okay. Because, um, you know, he he takes a phone call and very loudly starts, uh, you know, explaining the story of how he just woke up from being blackout drunk Whoa. last night and he's got bruises all over and his, you know, Sergey was choking him out. Was he in a tracksuit by any <laughs> chance? From his accent, you could kind of imagine the tracksuit. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to generalize about Slavic no, no, people no. of any kind, but, but just, just to give you a local color. Sure. Is, he was almost certainly from Belarus. This is East side and yeah, yeah. Bellevue by way of Belarus. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> and he starts to get more and more like, uh, graphic about the the abuse his friend you know the pummeling he apparently received from his friend while he was drunk over the weekend and you know it's all very vivid and uh lots of swearing and parents start 
taking their kids uh-huh. out of the waiting room. And he's just a, some oblivious young person being like, right. I know, why would Sergey? <laughs> I need to talk to <laughs> Sergey, you know. And finally, you know, and uh, finally somebody comes and talks to him and he, an employee takes him outside to have his loud cell phone conversation. And Mindy was like, man, if, if we were like, if we were short story writers, you know, like we would have been hanging on every word, you know, because right. it's in dialect. Right. And, it, and it's, you know, it's just some gift from God, this situation you would never have as a, 40-year-old fiction writer, like a kid waking up in a car realizing he's been like beaten up by an angry friend. And uh, and, and then just kind of the unself-awareness of just yelling out of the length in front of kids, like some kind of weirdo Salinger narrator. Right. Uh, and uh, and that's exactly right. You know, that's, that's the kind of found gold that, uh, that's why writers carry notebooks because the universe will deliver just small ideas to you. But that is the thing I think that the that being a creative that, that you have to train yourself to recognize because that stuff happens all the time and you just sit there going yes. I don't have any ideas it happens. and it's happening right around yes. you yeah that's the thing like you think you're not having any ideas but really there's just too many ideas and maybe it's just recognizing them I had a great idea last night we were sitting uh, in the living room it was about eleven o'clock at night and you know the one thing that those those new food delivery services are bad at. I mean, they're actually there's they're a few a, things, a lot of things. But you know, like, did I tell you my son is delivering now? Yeah, you did. That's that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. He's if, uh, his, if his phone goes to red or whatever the color is of there's lots of food orders, he's out the door. I uh, at his new Subaru. I, I was very suspicious of those uh, delivery services because it feels like what I want is a, a four dollar box of crackers and I'm going to pay sixteen dollars for it. Yeah, he delivers to a lot of. Um, wealthy UW international students who will pay $16 because they want a cookie right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I, and I feel like the, whatever I would spend so much time figuring out what the breaking point right. was of like, right. okay, this is now a good deal. I, I'm, it's worth the delivery. Fee. How many items do I have to order? But what you really want at 11 o'clock at night is what? Mm, it's not a cookie. Ice cream. That's true. You want ice cream at 11 and it's the thing that, or 1030, but it's the thing you don't want to have to leave the house to go get. It feels dumb to get up and go get ice cream, but delivery services are terrible at bringing you ice cream. And part of the reason is they only have the, they only seem to have access to the worst flavors and it's just a bad, I don't know. It's just, they're, they're, they're not, they're not, uh, they're not designed specifically to bring you this one most important food stuff. And so I was like, this is an opportunity. You need the good humor man, but at night. That's right. A, an ice cream truck, but that comes, night. That, that's on an app and it, and they just, they have f- big coolers in the back. They have every kind of novelty and they just circle the streets like sharks waiting to get hailed. And then they are just, oh, they're like. It's like a, a Baskin Robbins that comes to you. Yeah. Would you like a half gallon of Neapolitan ice cream? We happen to have it. And it just feels like it's a million dollar idea. That's but. a sixth of a gallon of three different flavors. Yeah. Well, when you think about there it, you go. well, you just, you've just given this idea to the future. There it is. Take it and run with it. Uh, there's a, you, did you ever see that Mike Lee movie about Gilbert and Sullivan that, uh, topsy turvy? I'm guessing no, cause it's a three hour movie about no. Gilbert and Sullivan. I did not see it. I have no interest in operettas, but, um, but you did see it. I love, I love a good Mike Lee joint. And there's a part where, um, Gilbert and, and Sullivan are, uh, fighting about, 
the new idea. It ends up being about the writing of the Mikado. It's a true story. But um, I think, which way does it go? Three Gil- little Sullivan does not, exactly. Sullivan does not like Gilbert's idea. Hmm. Uh, his original idea, which seems derivative of their other work. And uh, and Gilbert just won't give it up. Uh, and Sullivan's like, I'm not interested in writing another one of these. And he's like, well, I, I have had what I deem to be a good idea. And such ideas are not three to a penny. Can you imagine collaborating with someone where you were so, you were, it was such a fruitful partnership. And then you arrived at that moment where yeah. one of, one of you was like, this is a great idea. And the other one was like, I don't want anything to do with it. I guess they fought a lot, but I've been, I've definitely been in that situation of be of like being like, I can tell this is a good idea and I don't, they're not three to a penny. Like I rarely get right. an idea. So but I have then, to stick and with Mindy's this. like, not a good idea. And but you're if, like, no, sweetheart, what if we, but if you don't write it down, you will lose it. Yeah. And that's kind of the, that brings us to kind of the idea of why the back of a napkin is an iconic surf, writing surface. How often do you have an idea for an omnibus entry that you don't retain because you forgot to write it down? Oh, it's got to be once a day. Well, it's not once a day. Because, well, I mean, you know, I was going to get to this eventually, but the fact that we all have the notes app on a phone now means we are all mooning young poets with our moleskine notebooks, <laughs> right? Like, there's no excuse now not to just take it out and jot down the thing. Do you, do you have right. a, you don't have a million lists on your phone, right? I don't have lists, but I do have notes that I add, um, I add stuff to every two hours. I, pull, I, I have so many out. lists. Yeah. Ideas for trivia questions. Uh, the 50 top critically rated movies of 2021 or 2020. Cause I didn't see any omnibus ideas. Uh, Things I'm looking for in bookstores, mm-hmm. Twitter drafts, uh, omnibus addenda suggestions. Did I say omnibus ideas? Omnibus ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideas for my board game. Gift ideas. Uh, it, it's ideas for my next book. Like it's, I have like twenty of these. Here, here are some of the most recent lyrics that I've written down in my <clears throat> lyric oh, notes behind the napkin. Uh, you shouldn't have killed that captain. Is that a sequel song? Answer song to the Commander Thinks Aloud? <laughs> there it is. You shouldn't have killed that captain. I have no idea what I was thinking. Um, let's see. Uh, Brendan sent another friend request. You didn't accept, but you didn't tell Ben. I like the internal rhyme of Brendan, friend, and Ben. Yeah. <clears throat> you just don't want to start all that again. Mm. See? So you got your Brendan, your friend, your Ben, and your again. That's some That's some stuff. I learned that from Chuck D. <laughs> uh, um... So I, you know, I, let's see, uh, I don't want to kick it tonight. <laughs> now, does, does that mean like, hey, let's, that seems like the B side of like an Arsenio Hall, uh, single well, from this 1990. Is, this is the question. It's one of those. And you, I do this a lot in my lyrics. Is it that you don't want to kick it? Like, hey, let's kick it. Or do you want to kick your habit? Tonight? Oh, Which I is see. it? I don't want to kick it tonight. Uh huh. Do you yeah. think you would figure that out in writing the song, or would you preserve the ambiguity for the listener? No, I would. Per- I, the ambiguity. You'll, if you listen to the long winners, which I know you used to do, uh, still do. You'll find that you'll find that happens periodically, where you're like, "No, wait a minute, which one is it?" But I don't. I I, I try not to resolve it because it's both things. It's both. It, it's both things. I know singer songwriters don't want to hear this, but I'm the worst at listening to lyrics. I'm just I like, know. I love this song. What's it about? I have no. You know. You, I've had so many experiences in my life of just, just loving a song and later finding out it was about yeah. Bonnie and Clyde or teen pregnancy or like, I, I literally have no idea what I'm hearing. I no longer take that personally because some of the great music appreciators 
including myself, like uh, never realized. I have no idea what any ZZ Top song is about, unless the title explains it. It's probably just called Texas Girls, and it's about Texas girls. Yeah. Here's one. You suffer from paralysis and overanalysis. Oh, who, yeah. now, who's, now who's Gilbert and Sullivan? <laughs> and couldn't follow through, and I couldn't be the glue. I should have gone, but I kept holding on. Yeah, man. This is all, I don't know why I'm giving this away. Well, this, it's, I mean, it's, it just shows that, you know, even the greatest rock lyrics, when they're, not paired, when they're not paired with the song, <laughs> yeah. you can't really tell if they're extremely moving or extremely terrible. Right. That could have been, th- those could be real tearjerkers or they could be super angry punk songs or they could just be dog roll. But imagine a time when we don't all have phones in our pockets. I can so this could, any, any time in history before 20 years ago. I remember. And go back further to a time when actually paper is in pretty short supply. You've probably seen. I don't know if I can go that far back. Well, there's a whole there's a whole life. word. Do you know the word palimpsest? Yes. This is not something you and I will remember firsthand, but for centuries of human history, people would paper was so valuable that people would reuse it. Oh, of course. You would just you would just erase whatever jottings you had on it before and jot or sketch something else. And that's true of like old illuminated manuscripts and stuff, right? If you if you hold it up to the light, yeah, you can old, see old that it, vellum scrolls. Yeah. You can you can see what they used to be. Or have you ever seen the thing where somebody writes someone a letter and they've they write horizontally and then they turn the paper and write so it becomes like plaid letter? No. Oh, you've never seen this? Oh, that's cool. Because it, it turns out it's actually pretty legible. The eye can follow a line even if it's being broken by vertical lettering every inch. Yeah, of course. And I then can you see can, that happening. Then you can turn it and do it again. The eye's very good at just leaving out the vertical lines. It's just like magic eye. It's, yeah, you see dolphins. Uh, so yeah, a surprising number of just Civil War letters or you know whatever will, uh, you know, maybe Samuel Pepys' diary. I don't know. A lot of old-timey writing will, will be reusing paper because... People didn't always have paper on them. And in the 19th century, I mean, there's been two pretty famous examples of uh, of things just being hastily jotted on scrap paper. I would say the two most famous examples of this are the Gettysburg Address and the first Harry Potter book. The Gettysburg Address was written on the back of a CVS receipt. <laughs> and the first Harry you Potter write, book. You could write like Washington's Farewell Address <laughs> on the back of a CVS receipt. Am I right? Lol. They're so long. I know, with all that stuff at the bottom, all those coupons. Take our survey. But the Harry po- the first Harry Potter book was what? Written on a, a single roll of, uh, of paper towels? The typical legends are that Abraham Lincoln wrote uh, the Gettysburg Address, which is famously short. It's like 230 words. Right. On the back of an envelope in the train en route to Gettysburg. And the and this is this was propped up um, by no less than Harriet Beecher Stowe, who said mm. she saw Lincoln do it. And even Andrew... Why was Harriet Beecher Stowe on the train? Yeah, it was a, is it a murder mystery? Hmm. Why, why Are all the famous celebrities of the 1860s on this train? He was like, what is it? How do you say... Uh, how do you say 80... Uh, yeah, what's, seven, a, what's a cooler way to yeah, say 87 years ago? And Harriet Beecher Stowe's like, Score. Back then, there were no thesauri. You would have Four to travel score. with, as they were called, a lady novelist. <laughs> and she would walk you through. That's still what I call you, a You would say, what's a word for scrupulous? And she'd be like, meticulous, pecunious. Uh, and then uh, another celebrity who claimed to somehow claim to have been present, Andrew Carnegie, for hmm. all of his life, said that as a young boy, he gave Link, or as a young man, he gave Lincoln the pencil he used to write the Gettysburg Address, hmm. which you're already Andrew Carnegie. You're super rich. You're famous. You don't have to make up. Like that you were at Woodstock or whatever. Yeah, the, I mean, that was before you could check his Instagram to see where he was that day. <laughs> Apparently, he was some Scrooge McDuck type who loved to just tell yarns about 
his, his young Scottish, young Scottish adventures. I mean, the number one reason to be a billionaire is to have everyone hang on your dumb yarns. Well, but you ha- you would have real stories if you're a real billionaire. Well, I suppose. Could, I mean, not Elon Musk. He just smokes pot with Joe Rogan. I for actually, some reason, I'm but. thinking. I mean, going running down the list of billionaires, I, I don't, I don't, I can't think of very many that have interesting stories. You're probably right. Yeah, that's why they want to hang out with. Famouses. You've met a couple. You've met a couple billionaires. Any interesting stories? I met Bezos. No, he just wanted to hear other people's stories. Exactly. Paying um, you to tell his stories. Anyway, those stories about Harry Beecher Stone and Andrew Carnegie found their way into a 1906 pamphlet called The Perfect Tribute, which was like, uh, you know, a, an appreciation of the Gettysburg Address 50 years on. And they kind of became cemented in the public consciousness. Is the original draft on an envelope? Did it survive? No. Apparently, it's well attested that Lincoln spent two weeks working on the Gettysburg Address. Oh. He was a poor extemporaneous speaker, so he always like had just copious drafts. Oh, so that story is malarkey? It's malarkey, oh. as we say in the Biden era. You know, uh, I, I had this experience um, trying to figure out how Kurt Cobain wrote his songs, because in interviews in the era, in the time, 1990-91, he very famously was like, oh, you know, I wrote those lyrics like standing at the microphone. I just made them up as, you know, in the moment. They don't mean anything. Um, I don't spend any time thinking about it. You thought he protesteth too much? Well, it, it, at the time, I was, I was young. I was 20 years old and trying to figure out how to write songs myself. And I was like, wow, he's so good at it. Like if he if his lyrics really don't mean anything, why do I find so much meaning in them? And then after he died, long after you remember, they they published facsimiles of his journals and notebooks, and there were all the many drafts of all of the lyrics that he'd been clearly slaving over for weeks and months. All those lyrics showed up many many times. Yeah, I remember the documentary. Yeah, they they, I, they made a whole documentary out of those diaries, and I was like. Oh man, how was I so taken in by, you know, that self-mythologizing? Because, you know, I was always working and reworking and could never... If only I was like Kurt. Yeah, why can't I just say these brilliant things without trying? That's, yeah, that's, I think that's kind of the, that's the dark side of giving this kind of, this mythologizing genius this way. But, I'm, but that's what the back of a napkin is all about, that, you know, it's all about lightning strikes and then history right. changes. Isn't this on the road? Didn't Kerouac have a similar story where he just sat down and... I think that's just Benzedrine. rapidy rapid But yeah, he, 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 he did it on some continuous roll of paper because yeah. he didn't want to... Because the, the uh, chemically fueled ideas were coming so fast that he didn't want to set down his coffee and his pills long enough to switch paper in his Smith Corona, right? Right. Um, the J.K. Rowling story, by the way, is also pretty much bull. Uh, it's often said that Harry Potter came together on the back of napkins... She now laughs at that on Twitter when she's not disparaging trans people for yeah, some that's reason. Her, that's her new gig. She, people don't remember this, but she used to be a popular children's writer. She really, she really was. <laughs> Man, one Beloved of the, even. One of the, one of the <laughs> best-selling ones. Yeah. Uh, and she, you know, she now says, no, no, I always had pencil and paper. I was, you know, I was a struggling divorcee, single mom type, but I wasn't like cadging napkins from the... Uh, from the coffee shop. I think there where, is. Where did that myth come from? There's, I don't know where it started, but it's, it's very specific. She's on a delayed train from Manchester to London. The train is just sitting at a platform somewhere, uh, in the Midlands or whatever. And she has a dream. She, all she's got is a napkin and she, yeah, she's, she suddenly just starts writing down Harry Potter, Rihanna. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a fanfic about Harry Potter and Rihanna. I was, I, but it could be. I, my my imagination just blossomed. Like wow, 
there is. I think there is I'm, one. I'm, I'm rooting for Hermione. There is one <laughs> classic love triangle. <laughs> there is one true story. I think that where that she has said where she came up with the um, the four houses of Hogwarts. There's four. You know, there you get a hat tells you what kind of person you are. I guess apparently. Sure. Uh, People say it to me all the time. I have kids. I can't pretend. I don't Which know one this are stuff. you, Slytherian? Um, I don't know. Ravenclaw is that the is that the smart Those but not the but ones. not all that um not all that heroic puffin stuffs. My daughter's a very proud puffin stuff, and she has like the hats and the the hoodies. Oh. And what do you think I am? Uh, Slytherin, maybe. Herb, Herber, Herber, Gerber? Slytherin, maybe. maybe. Sly. Sly. How do you know if you're a Muggle or not? If you can, can, well, can you do magic? Yes. Well, there you go. You're not a I Muggle. I do magic every day. Uh, and she apparently came up with all these ideas and started sketching out the. You know, just the how that magic system would work on a barf bag on a on a oh, on a plane back to that's England. pretty good. I've, and I've done that. Have you have you ever realized you didn't have paper on a plane and wrote written on the barf bag? I've definitely written on barf bags. I I've written on all these things, napkins, and I mean, I have a. You I, attest to the truth of the trope, even though Lincoln and Rowling. Yeah, did not. I have a big bin still of of uh, of napkins and receipts and stuff that I can't because I'm an archivist by nature. I can't bring myself to throw away these these little scraps where things used to get written. This entry in the omnibus is brought to you by Native. Native makes aluminum-free deodorant because they care about you. They care about your armpits. They care about the amount of aluminum going into your armpits specifically. I prefer zero amount of aluminum in my armpits. That's my favorite number of aluminum is a number of amount of aluminum is zero is zero no matter what the units are i just want it to be zero they use stuff like coconut oil and shea butter that you've heard of that might be good for you and your skin those sound pretty nice those sound almost in the category of like a a a, a balm or a or a, a like a what do you put a lotion yeah those are things you would choose to put on you not like aluminum which someone would have to pay you hey can i put some aluminum in your armpit you'd be like yeah, if you give me fifty bucks, it feels like the scene in uh, or that that whole that whole thing in in uh, Mad Max um, with Charlize Theron where they're spraying aluminum on their faces. Oh, right. Witness me. That's not what you want on your armpits. No. Do you think they used deodorant in that movie? I think they used. Well, I think it doesn't think, look like anybody's wearing deodorant. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I think they used uh, spray paint, but I do feel like that's what what we're trying to avoid here. So if you want just a more natural approach to deodorizing your pits, we recommend Native because it's risk-free to try. It's always free shipping within the U.S., free 30 days returns and exchanges. They've got deodorants for baking soda-sensitive folks. They've got unscented ones for people like me who prefer their natural scent. They just don't want it to be... You just want less of it. Too much. I want to smell like me, but Not like 15% of me. I've, I've, I've checked out the native product quite a bit, and I, I do not see any hippie scents, which is great. No hippies. You don't want it to smell like hippie, or you don't want it to smell like things that are redolent of hippie culture? Uh, yeah, like both patchouli? things. Both things. Hippies use side door. That's what we say around here. And then, I, and then you go around the side and there's no door. <laughs> I've, never, I've never seen a deodorant that said it was like hippie flavor. Well, no, they always say something. They always they, they always put like a man, mandala on it. And that's how you know it's about hippies. You're, you're alienating the hippie contingent. But no, I, I think they'll use this stuff anyway. Yeah, I feel we like- We can hippie, say whatever we want. They're still going to have to use this kind of uh, natural deodorant. I feel like hippies know that I- 
you know, generally like them. I just wish that they would wear more products that smelled like shea butter and fewer that smelled like patchouli. And even if they think we're being a little aggro, they'll have a fun, chill attitude toward it. Yeah, just be chill, bros and and brats. If you guys want to make the switch to native, go to nativedo.com slash omnibus and use the promo code omnibus at checkout to get 20% off your first Whoa, order. That's a pretty good discount. So nativedeo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout. That's how you get 20% off your first native order. And the DO is just deodorant shortened to DEO. So nativedeo.com slash omnibus. Oh, I thought it was like in Excelsis DO. Yeah, no, different. Even though those stories are not true, there are some kind of, by the 19th century, there were kind of famous stories in the public consciousness of great ideas coming together on scrap paper. Um, The steam hammer was invented by a Mr. Naismith in a scheme book that he carried around with him. So he was a, you know, by the 1830s, this engineer type already has a a little book he carries around with ideas, like a modern type, Mm -hmm. a modern undergrad type. And you can still see the scheme book today in the Institution of Mechanical Engineering or whatever. Opened to that page, presumably. Yeah, and the similar case for uh, Paxton, the guy who designed the Crystal Palace for the great Victorian exhibition. He, Mm -hmm. he, it came to him in in a moment where all he had was a piece of blotting paper. Because that's something we do. That's the kind of scrap paper that doesn't exist anymore. But old-timey people would have pink blotting paper on their desk to dab at... uh, just to dry the ink. To dab at ink, yeah, uh, as it dried. And so he he drew the Crystal Palace on a sheet of pink blotting paper. That's now in the Victorian Albert Museum. Uh, a, a less famous case, and not on, not on display in the museum, thank goodness, is the American inventor John Stevens, who had a great idea in the middle of the night for a steamboat. Do you have middle of the night ideas? I will. No. I, uh, will, I will often jot them down, maybe on my hand, and then in the morning... It just, there's no context and I have no idea what I was thinking. Maybe only twice in my life have I woken up and, and reached over and written something down and both times looked at it in the morning and made no sense at all. And so I guess I just stopped doing that. John Stevens had a great idea for a steamboat or what he thought was in the middle of the night and lacking paper and pencil, he turned over and started drawing it with his finger on his wife's back. So this is kind of the uh, the erotic side of the back of the napkin. Did he know that it wouldn't be there in the morning? <laughs> I think he's one of these guys who's you know he's just like writing in air. You know he needs yeah. to he needs to spatially lay it out, even if yeah. Even, or maybe she had that thing where um, my wife has this where if you if you if you kind of abraid her skin, like little uh, raised drawings will appear, temporary tattoos. Yeah, but not until the morning. <laughs> right, it's not going to last till morning, John Stevens, and. Uh, and it wakes her up, and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, honey, do you know what I'm making? And she says, uh, the figure of a fool. Aha! Owned. Zing! Uh, so that's why that story is famous. Her her back skin is not hanging in a museum. They, see, ooh, they seem like they were in love. But, uh, you know, as you can see, these are all engineers. And as, it, as we got into the 20th century, this was very much a trope of the scientific trait, not the creative mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're, they're both creative. I don't, I know you hate engineers, but no, I don't hate them. Just computer engineers. No, I, just, <laughs> I mean, to despise someone is not to hate them. <laughs> uh, they're not worthy of your hate. Um, uh, I, I seem to like, I have an image of Robert Goddard drawing a three-stage rocket on a napkin. I mean, one of the things about writing some, something on a napkin is that those are absorbent pages. And so they suck the ink out of your old, Nib pen. Is that good or bad? Well, I just I think it's all spidery. Yeah, my my image of of those drawings is that they're kind of bleeding and and um yeah before the ballpoint pen it was and yeah napkins are soft paper right yeah. 
Yeah, uh, engineers would all wear suits back then. And so they would often have, you know, an envelope in a breast pocket. And so back of the envelope kind of became the engineering world uh, way to connote, uh, you know, a hastily sketched idea and maybe a hastily calculated result. Right. Um, of the parabola that's going to that's going to deliver the shell to the enemy. Right. And you, you know, you want to be right when you're launching rockets, but, um, Enrico Fermi was famous for, uh, I guess. Wait a minute. I know that. I don't know the answer to this question. Blowing up Japan. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Uh, Manhattan project, Italian American, uh, science, uh, physicist, the legend Enrico Fermi famous for many things, but I guess he kind of created, or at least created a brand of being a guy who could produce numbers quicker than, his contemporaries, he, he, by all accounts, he loved math. He loved calculation, gifted mathematician, but he was just an impatient guy who wanted an answer before the, the big clacking machine or the room full of assistants could give it to him. So he would, he kind of generated these ways of producing numbers just based on orders of magnitude. Like, okay, I don't know the weight of that much rock, but I, I, I do know if it's 10 tons, a hundred tons or a thousand tons, you know? Yeah. Uh, so he was, he was fine with, with estimation. At least at first, yeah. you know, cause it gets you when you're, when you're a kid doing math, you're like, well, there's a huge difference between two and eight. And for most engineering problems, no, there really isn't. They're both, they're both that order of magnitude. The big difference would be if it was a hundred or a thousand, right. you know, that's, that's what you have to worry about. So even without data, sometimes there's some classic example of, you know, in, in, and when it comes to what are now called Fermi problems, the ar archetypal one is how do you estimate the number of piano tuners in New York city? Hmm. Cause in an age where nobody had a Manhattan phone book, that was like your quintessential problem without data today. Of course you can, what you do is you throw a, five a film Google festival <laughs> where there's a piano tuning scene in every film and then just count the number of tickets sold. You see how many people write into the to the Times to complain <laughs> about the in, inaccurate piano tuning? No, but it's just the kind of thing you can do with almost no data. Let's say New York has a million people. That's 10 to the 7th. It has more than a million people. Right, but this is, uh, this is you know, 1930s era. Okay. Uh, so, so let's say there's 10 to the 7th people. And again, it doesn't matter. As long as there's a, a millions of people, that number works. Okay, you right. don't have to know if there's 2 million or, or 7 million. Right. Um, then let's assume each of those uh, households or families has 4 to 5 people. So now you can just say, well, it's 2 times 10 to the 6th. Now, now you're in that ballpark. Um, again, it's old numbers, so you're assuming... Mm -hmm. four to five person households. Let's assume how many people have a piano one in 10. That's what it would have been at back the time. Then. Yeah. Well, okay. One in 10. So now it's two times 10 to the fifth. Now, how many times do you, how often do you tune your piano? Maybe every couple of years? No, but let's say, let's yeah. say then let's when, say, when everybody had to gather around and sing over there, yeah, let's, let's say every two years. So then it's two to the fifth, two times 10 to the fifth pianos being tuned Every other year. So that's 10 to the fifth tunings a year. Now, a piano tuner, how many tunings can he do a day? Maybe if he's really booked, he can do five in a five. day. So all you have to do is like see how many piano tuners the economy will support. And, and what does that come out to? Uh, well, let's say he works 200 days a year. So it's five a day times 200. He does 1,000 a year. So it's... it's um. About 100, 10 to the 5th divided by 10 to the 3rd. It's about 100 piano tuners in New, the city of New York. And that, that may not be right. It may be 50 and it may be 300. Right. But if you're just trying to figure out, hey, will this device, you know, is, is this a, a promising line of research? Uh, that's, 
And, may, and maybe it's less today because fewer people have pianos. More than 100, less than 1,000 is all you're trying to That's what establish. Fermi wanted. Right. And I guess that was a, a real paradigm shift for a lot of scientists who were like, whoa, Fermi got this, good, got this answer good enough um, while we were still dicking around on the chalkboard. Right. Slide rules out, everybody's clack, clack, clacking, and Fermi's already down the block. Yeah. And so engineers started calling this back of an envelope math. Uh, in the UK, it was often back of a fag packet, or which, you know, is a cigarette box, back of a cigarette box. Because um, that was another kind of stiff cardboard you, you might have in a pocket. Right. Um, and this kind of led to the 20th century where there started to become a, a, a mystique around the origins of ideas. Um, you know, m- more mass media meant creators could talk more about the stories behind, you know, you might know how Paul McCartney wrote yesterday because he's talked about it in a thousand interviews. Whereas somebody in Victorian times would have no idea where Charles Dickens got the idea for Ye old curiosity, the old curiosity shop, because there was no kind of backstage uh, access like that. Right. Um, so the 20th century is just a succession of these mythologized napkin ideas. The earliest I can find, 1943, Johnny Mercer writes One for My Baby, the classic mm-hmm. kind of Sinatra torch song, 3 a.m. in the bar kind of thing. Actually, he did write it at 3 a.m. in a bar, which is probably why it's such a story. P.J. Clark's on 3rd Avenue in New York. He wrote it about Judy Garland, who he was still pining for after a, a, a tempestuous love affair with her when she was 19 and didn't know any better, and he was, well, too old to be dating 19-year-old Judy Garland. Well. <laughs> really? What's your, what's your cutoff for dating 19-year-old Judy Garland? He was in his 30s, so. And, uh, and the story became well-known enough that he actually wrote to the bartender at P.J. Clark's and apologized to Tommy for saying, hey, I know in my song the bartender is named Joe. Oh. But, you, and, you and I both know you were on duty that night. Right. Um, but, but I anonymized you so you wouldn't get... Well, Tommy didn't. Tommy doesn't rhyme. Oh, sure. Yeah, J- Joe is one syllable and rhymes with... Uh, I don't know. Um, ho? Yeah, I think it rhymes with a ho, right? 1959, the most famous Seattle napkin ever. Do you know this story? 1959 Seattle napkin. Oh, it would be the Space Needle that designed is correct. on a napkin. Edward Carlson, a kind of a self-made gas station attendant turned Tacoma hotelier, had the big idea that we could get a World's Fair if we had some kind of crazy landmark. Have you ever seen the napkin? Yeah, absolutely. So the napkin, I think, which is now, I think you can see it or copies of it up in the Space Needle. It's just, it's two horizontal lines with a circle on top. Yeah. Because he had seen like some Stuttgart, some German radio tower and had been like, well, we could have that looming over our fair. And, you know, it really shows you these these napkin ideas are often, you know, Johnny Mercer had the complete lyrics of One for My Baby. But all Carlson had was two lines in a circle, and that was enough to spark his creative juices. Well, I know, but every architect, I mean, that became a a symbol of being a genius architect, that you could draw six lines on a napkin and... A single curve. Yeah, and then uh, they'd build an opera house and and you could claim it. I mean, I wonder if that changed architecture, too, because you do see buildings now that are... I mean, you could never convey Chart Cathedral with a, a single curve, but, you know, if you're trying to get the commission for the Sydney Opera House... Right. Or if you're, you know, Frank Gehry, uh, Guggenheim, Bilbao, or whatever, it really is kind of like, my pen drew a contour, yeah. and then I knew. That's you know? the thing. All those all those Frank Gehry... All those high-concept drawings buildings. started, and then he just has, like, 90 different people to, to execute. You know, my great-uncle Al played a large role in the... Uh, in the Seattle World's Fair, and I think that that napkin uh, that napkin may have been presented to. He was on the city council 
at the time. And that napkin may have played a role in, I mean. The, the council saw the yeah, napkin? Al was there at the meeting. I would like to think he did a more elaborate drawing before he just showed this slapdash. No, they were all so drunk on, <laughs> on afternoon <laughs> boilermakers. Uh, there are two, oh, and Carlson went on to become the CEO of Weston Hotels. So he, 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 you know, he, he rode the 62 exhibition to great heights. There are two classic napkins in 1966, uh, at an EEOC conference in Washington, DC. Electrical engineers. (laughs) No, equal opportunity, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, government employment guidelines. The goal of the, um, conference was to decide, I think, whether or not title eight applied to job listings. Like, could you have jobs for men and jobs for ladies. Right. And this being 1966, the government came down on the side of, of course, there's two kinds of jobs. Right. Well, and you don't want to give those give those man jobs to ladies. Think what would happen. And a bunch of uh, female attendees who had come to the conference just to push this issue were angry. And later that night in Betty Friedan's hotel room, she called up to 15 of her kind of angrier colleagues and had them come up. And she wrote on a napkin, National Organization for Women, and pushed it across the table. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the other women like slapped down a $5 bill and said, these are my dues. Who else is in? <laughs> and they all signed their names on this napkin and, uh, and now was born. That's fantastic. And Betty Frieden walked out of there with like 75 bucks. <laughs> it's funny that it seems like the, the uh, appeal of the acronym may have been a big part of it. Yeah. Like, guess, guess what? I got the idea, you guys. It's good stuff. It's, 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 it's a justification for all that Shark Tank stuff where you just have to have the the catchy marketing, and then everything else will follow. Futurelings will, of course, be looking, will be listening to this program from their, uh, from their now bunkers on Mars. And You think now we'll eventually have a space program? I, I do. I think now we'll, now will be the... Um, Once all the, the men or- have blown themselves up. <laughs> it will be the organization that ends up colonizing the universe. Uh, the same year, 1966, in the St. Anthony Hotel, the, the nice old, uh, the bar of the nice old, you know, the paneled bar of the nice old hotel in uh, San Antonio, Texas, a lawyer named Herb Kelleher meets with a local money guy named Rollin King, who, t- who says to Herb, convince me. And Herb tapes a, takes a napkin and draw and writes, on the top of the napkin, he writes Dallas. And yeah. on the lower left, he writes San Antonio. And on the lower right, he writes Houston. And then, wait for it. Wait a minute. He connects them with arrows and and he's got a triangle and he says, this airline flies these routes 10 times a day. Are you in? And that is the beginning of Southwest Airlines. Hot. And it really helps when a corporation later exists to mythologize the napkin. Right. Because, you know, they have a big plaque replica of this at headquarters. Oh, they don't have it in a glass case. I wonder if they have the action. They must, maybe they don't have the act. A lot of these, you know, in one of these cases, the napkin still exists. But in many cases, the napkin was disposable. You know, the napkin was until I could get in front of a yeah, right. typewriter. And then he put it back under his drink and yeah, ordered exactly. three more Boilermakers. Uh, in this case, um, that napkin, you know, replicas of that napkin have later been given. I've been on Southwest flights where the napkin that came with the plastic drink cup had that sketched on it really yeah they, so they they produce millions of those napkins and the saint anthony hotel does as well i think they um th- you know the, their cocktail napkin occasionally has a southwest endorsement wow all, all of this is predicated on believing that southwest airlines is a good idea <laughs> you don't like not knowing where your seat is no <laughs> not being able to fly nonstop uh, anywhere no i don't like it i just like to stop in oakland on the way to anywhere i don't want to do that uh in I flew Southwest back and forth the whole time I was on Jeopardy, and I think it was because they were booking it and they booked contestants coach because we're not going to complain. That's 
I mean, it was, you know, Salt Lake to LA, it was an easy flight. But in 1971, there's a chemist named Paul Lauterbur who uh, works at the University of Pittsburgh and, you know, does research at the University of Pittsburgh and the Mellon Institute. He's at a big boy. Mm-hmm. hamburger joint right i've never been at a big boy but what you're kidding me no do they still have them it seems like it doesn't exist uh there was a big boy in anchorage in the 1970s and my dad and i went there it was one of our special like father son go to the big boy and get a, a hot fudge sundae it was like a denny's except it had a, a a a large like a husky child holding a hamburger out front i've a seen a big boy i've seen one in la yeah, I, I remember the Husky Child, but mostly from like just Simpsons references. I think I've seen one in LA. They were but, called Bob's Big Boy. Yes, they're still. I mean, that's that that varies. That that would, Bob was one of the franchisees. Oh, it could have been like Mort's Big yeah, Boy. It could also be like Arnold's Big Boy or I something. See. I see. Um, when he suddenly has an idea for this, he, he knows about this analytical technique where you can shoot a magnetic field at. Um, at water and the hydrogen ions will all align because they've got poles and the electrons spin on the same axis and it'll spit out radio waves and tell you something about the substance. And he suddenly realizes what if you could do that and produce an image and he starts drawing a machine that could actually do that. And he invents the MRI machine. Wow. And you know, which saves millions of lives and later wins him a Nobel prize on a napkin. Bob's big boy, some big boy, big boy burger napkin. Um, cause he was at lunch and I guess, right. I, I mean, one thing about these stories is it shows that a lot of ideas come out of context. Like he wasn't at the office. I find that I get ideas in planes sometimes because mm-hmm. you just feel untethered from the normal things you think about. Your low oxygen environment. Probably there's uh-huh. something to, there's something to that, I think. Or, you know, it's, it's someplace you're not used to being. I have long arguments, uh, with myself as I drive and always feel like if I were just in front of some kind of stenographer... I could really have elucidated this whole, you know, like big, big, elaborate kind of uh, argument in favor of an idea or, you know, like um, essay. Uh, But by the time I get where I'm going and sit down in front of a computer, like the argument isn't as cogent or, you know. I think that's why the napkin, because I've had that experience too, like, and and I feel like it's all ready to go. And this is for something I'm working on. Okay, this is how it'll start. This is how the first paragraph goes. Yeah. And then I'll get in front of a computer and I realize what I thought was concrete in my head was actually at a slightly more abstract level than actual words and sentences. Yeah, exactly. It's an outline. So I'm not there yet. But you're filling in the outline with all this energy. Yeah. But then, yeah. And, and if I'd had a napkin, you should not write with a napkin while you drive, unless you're in the future <laughs> and you have a self-driving car. Right. But, uh, but or I think, you can tell your passenger, like, hold on to the wheel for a second while I write this. <laughs> I got a great idea. But with a napkin, I think at lunch, you can tell where the holes are in the idea and you can start to yeah. fill it in. Uh, 1974, this is maybe the most, <laughs> maybe the most uh, notorious one. At, a, at the Washington Hotel, which is now the W um, in D.C., a you know, political hangout, um, the bigwigs of the Ford administration are hanging out. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld among them. All the good guys. A cool, a cool set uh-huh. to, to get a drink with. Yep. And a financial journalist is there, and they're meeting with an uh, and they're meeting an economist named Arthur Laffer. And they explain that Laffer um, curve. There you go. They explain that uh, the Ford administration, you know, Gerald Ford is kind of floundering. The economy's in trouble. He doesn't know how to whip inflation now. His idea is to raise government revenues by five percent by raising tax brackets, 5%. And Laffer says, oh no, buddy, you, you can't do that. That's not how the math works. And he explains the well-known economic principle that 
you know, there's diminishing returns. You can raise right. taxes 5% and the revenue growth may be 3%. Right. You get higher or lower and it may go down to zero because taxes are now too low or they're too high, you know, like they, 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 you know, they quash growth. And Ford and Cheney and Rumsfeld are just hypnotized because they can kind of see it all right there. Wait a second. So if you, you could make the argument that you would lower taxes and all the things people like would still be funded, this is gold for yeah. us for a small government candidate. Sure, this is hot stuff. And this is what leads to the Reagan revolution and, and Reaganomics in particular. It this, didn't get Ford reelected. It did not work, but it got Reagan elected in a landslide right? because he was the one telling the other Republicans hey, Reaganomics is going to save America, and George Bush is calling it voodoo economics. Um, and Bush was right, by the yes, way. I, uh, uh, we now know that, I mean, Laffer was correct. It's a well-understood economic principle. But the Laffer curve, as it, and it was never called the Laffer curve academically, because he didn't come up with it. This was just the name that, he like, was just describing it. this was the name that political strategists came up with it because of this origin story. Right. Uh, Laffer did not invent the Laffer curve. And importantly, he did not say, he's not some supply sider saying, look, all you got to do is lower taxes to almost nothing and uh, right. the, the, gro growth and tax revenue will skyrocket. Yeah, the industry just will yeah. flourish. The Laffer curve in any form is is agnostic on where you should set that point. Right. Uh, that's that's a decision for actual economists and and. Policymakers. I have the, this question came up yesterday. This is a little bit of a tangent, but someone uh, asked me to name every president who uh, ran for re-election and lost. And it's timely. Uh, yeah, and I and I was able to do it, except I missed Ford because he because he I, didn't he didn't start in a year that ended with well divisible not, by four. No, right? not that that. He was never elected, right? That's so what I how mean. could he be? How could he be reelected? Oh, I see. And so this was a. Well, you're correct. This was an argument that I got into with the with the uh, the person who had phrased the question, and I was like, hey, you know, what can I say? But I, but honestly, I had just forgotten. But but <laughs> if they said reelected, you caught a break. Yeah, I did. Um, so late, uh, much later, you know, once this this napkin becomes a essential part of Republican myth-making about the Reagan era. The Smithsonian is trying to do an exhibit about economics and policy of this time. Did Cheney have the napkin? Well, he, he tries to, he goes to the journalist who was there and says, the Wall Street Journal guy, I think, and says, hey, where's the napkin? And he's like, you know, I'm the one who wrote this story. I'm the only reason anybody knows about this. The napkin doesn't exist. Or maybe he's passed away and his widow says the napkin doesn't exist. And the Smithsonian does makes a few more phone calls. The napkin not only exists, it was autographed at either that night or sometime subsequent, like, to Don Rumsfeld from Arthur Laffer with the date, you know, best wishes from, you know, to Don. And uh, who had the napkin? Don? It, yeah, it must have been Rumsfeld because it's, it's, you can wow. see it today. You know, it, it was in the Smithsonian exhibit and it's personalized to Rumsfeld. And here's the, it's the ballsiest back of a napkin story of all time. This is, this is what makes it this a true Republican story. Right. They're writing in pen on a cloth napkin. Oh, a cloth napkin in pen. Aren't they special? They don't care about <laughs> restaurant policy or the, the waiter who's going to have to explain why he's one short. Right. Well, and this napkin, you know, it, 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 uh, it consigned millions of people to poverty. Of, right. Of course it's it the opposite. Be. For all the people saved by the MRI machine, how many were killed by Reaganomics? <laughs> no, people get mad yeah. when, we, when we make judgments about, That's right. about failed policy of our <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> Closed down the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, in 1975, uh, NASCAR had used 
five different point systems in nine years to come up with its championship formula, uh, which is what you, which is how you determine who won the season. Right. The, the problem there's a problem where if you um, the decision, are, you, are you trying to invalidate the uh, the results of NASCAR no, seasons no, in, I from learned, the 1970s? I learned from my mistake when I had ideas about cricket. Okay. I am not going to have any ideas about stock car racing. All right. uh, but there's an interesting problem, which is uh, more of a, it's a math problem, but it's also kind of a uh, an aesthetic problem of how your formula rewards low finishing in races. Like, do you do you reward the driver that drives in every race, but um, sometimes finishes high and sometimes finishes low? Or do you eventually incentivize racing fewer races? I, I was uh, I was reading something just the other day, and I don't know if it was NASCAR or or if it was Formula One, but there was one of those, those um, you know, race series that rewarded every driver except the last finisher. Oh, no, what it, you know what it was? It was flat track motorcycle racing. Oh, everybody gets points everybody except the last? Everybody gets points except the last guy. So it's br- the, the brutal um, jockeying is really for last? <laughs> yeah, if you, if you get last, you're, you, you get nothing. But if you're second to last, you get something. I wonder if that rewards safer driving. Because what that means is you do not want to be the first one, like, knocked out of the race by right. some kind of incident right i don't know if safe driving and flat track motorcycle racing if but those I, two phrases ever get but used. am i right that not everybody finishes these i'm just oh, wondering right. if this, i'm wondering if this is the equivalent of the concussion protocol in football like try to get these guys to stop knocking each other off the track so much yeah i think if you crack up it's not like you're it's that easy to get back on your horse right so yeah interesting um anyway so they what they nascar was finding that people their old all these old formulae were rewarding not racing. So their best drivers would drop out of these minor races because they didn't want to risk a low finish and hurt their ranking. Oh, I see. Sure. I just realized from talking to my son, this happens in chess as well. You know, people choosing often in, in chess matches, you know, only one player is incentivized. Their rating can only go up versus down. Well, the very few times that I've ever won a poker tournament, uh, it was because I just, (laughs) I just folded (laughs) for, for two hours in the middle of the the tournament until all the dum-dums waited for everyone else to collapse. Yeah. And then I got back in. Uh, so NASCAR wants a formula that makes its star drivers run, uh, run more races. And there's a PR man named Bob Latford who, uh, just loves crunching numbers. You know, he's got his TI calculator and at Boot Hill Saloon, which is like a biker bar in Daytona beach, Florida, mm-hmm. he shows them, he shows the NASCAR Han shows his work. He's like, this is how you do it. And he, you know, sketches it all in a napkin. They love it. And, uh, to this day, that's the, essentially that's the point system the NASCAR uses to determine its championships. Uh, the famous one of the 80s, and this one is mythologized quite a bit, Brandon Tartikoff, the young star wunderkind of, you're nodding. NBC, like you, right? Yeah, you've heard of an 80s NBC executive. <laughs> sure. And that's because he was a great self-myth maker. Like he hosted SNL and the, he thought up Punky Brewster. So the dog on Punky Brewster was named Brandon after him. Well, wasn't he always a the... Uh... He was the butt of Letterman's jokes a lot of the time. Exactly. Yeah, you know a lot of these people through. Um, and that's the same reason I know Les Moonves. Like the yeah. only two TV executives I've ever heard of is because Letterman used to make fun of them. Yeah. His bosses. Uh, the legend goes that he wrote down on a napkin MTV cops and slid it across a table, which led to. You want to guess? You want to guess the show? Uh, Twenty One Jump Street. Uh, close. A little earlier. Miami Vice. Oh, MTV cops. MTV. Like of what? Course. What if Hill Street Blues? But. MTV. Yeah, baby. In fact, the story is really not true. Uh, The creator of Miami Vice, a guy named Anthony Yurkovich, had been developing, he was a Hill Street Blues guy who had been developing for years this idea. He had read an article about uh, civil asset forfeiture in 
in um, Miami, Florida. Yeah, yeah, like cops getting all this cool stuff from busted drug lords. And so he had a pitch called Gold Coast. And apparently he had already pitched this to Tartikoff, and that's when Tartikoff wrote the MTV Cops memo. Yeah. Um, but that's a super famous one. And there's a similar one in 87, a bunch of Discovery Channel guys out to lunch just yelling out ideas. And somebody likes an idea well enough to copy it down on a napkin, and it, he writes down Shark Week, which might have been forgotten in the buzz of ideas. I mean, that's... But, but it's the, killer. The thing about the napkin is it's, you know, it's, it's permanent. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it commemorates the good idea. And then finally, maybe the most recent one of these that's that really has enough mythology about it is 1994. Uh, Pixar is wrapping up production on the first Toy Story movie. It looks like it's going to work, but they've just been obsessed with Toy Story, this proof of con- concept for computer-generated animated feature, for years. And they don't know what to do now that the movie's done. So they're, they're four big guys, uh, all grab lunch at... Hidden City Cafe, Point Richmond, California, and they spend a couple hours writing down ideas on napkins, and they have a Bugs Life napkin and a Monsters, Inc. napkin and a Finding Nemo napkin and a Wally napkin. No kidding. All in the same afternoon, like, while Toy Story is still being rendered in the computer. Wow. I thought you were going to say they worked all day and they came up with Toy Story 2. <laughs> so what if there's a cowboy and a cowgirl? Uh, and you know, these are like, like MTV cops. A lot of these stories are probably exaggerated nowadays that they're all caught up in a, um, in a corporate setting. You know, there's a literally a PR department working on what do we put on the about us section of our website? You know, when the company is younger, how do we get VC funding? What's our cool origin? And then later, you know, what's the thing that kind of sums up our brand now, you know, Southwest airlines, utilitarian problem solving regional flights in the West Man, a napkin says it all, you know? Um, So a lot of these things are propped up by corporate legacy, whether they're true or not. Well, you know, the back of the napkin became um, became a cautionary tale in indie rock uh, starting in the the late 1990s. Oh, why? um, Because record contracts would occasionally get sketched out on a napkin, like in a bar after the show— You'd get off the stage, you'd be all sweaty, you'd sit down with some rep from Island Records, and he'd be like, listen, man, I love you guys, like, I'm ready to sign you right now, and write some- Some terms. Some terms on a napkin and turn it around and- And and, would you have to sign the napkin? Well, bands did, but a lot of this is apocrypha, right? Um, Like, trying to find any band that actually still has the record contract written on a napkin uh, is is kind of hard, but- but it was a, um, you know, it was a cautionary tale to young bands. I was, you know, I was warned a half a dozen times, like, don't ever sign a napkin because it's a binding contract. It was, it was like a, a thing that young bands, uh, it was like a ghost story that you told around the campfire of some band that nobody could remember who signed this cocktail napkin. And now they were consigned, you know, their, their album was completely owned by, um, by Michael Jackson. Is the napkin enforceable? And 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 that's the thing. I mean there there's there's a lot of legal uh talk about, you know, a lot of legal precedent about whether or not an agreement like this is enforceable written on the back of a of a napkin that, you know, when both parties are like, "Ah, sure, I'll I'll put a million dollars into your into your shark week thing." Um so it was and I think a lot of the legend of the napkin contract 
kind of cast back to the 50s and 60s trying to explain how it was that artists uh, lost, lost all their, their songwriting. Yeah, all their rights. Yeah. Uh, I guess, and you know, maybe one reason why, another lesson we learned from this is that, uh, you know, the it often simplifies the ideas. It makes them a way you can see them clearly, remember them, and maybe sell them, you know, because it is, it is it, the napkin can only hold a high concept. <laughs> right. The napkin cannot hold the all the sub points. Um, and the fact that so many of them happen over long lunches or in bars maybe implies that it's kind of the loosening inhibitions of alcohol that produce the the clumsily sketched space needle or or whatever. It's funny how much corporate America has tried to corporatize that idea, right? I mean, I've been to several events where um, you know Microsoft takes their their subset of some subset of a team and tries to. Uh, tried to tries to artificially seed this kind of of story by putting them in a hotel somewhere up in the mountains and giving them all uh, whiteboards or something and encouraging yeah. them to go sit in little groups in the lobby or in the uh, hoping that yeah that, the retreat yeah. yeah hoping that by designing this that they're going to spark this kind of um, do you feel like it creativity. doesn't work like it has to be a real a bar and real real off duty guys I don't know I've been to a couple of them because the Long Winters got contracted to play um, play the big party at the end of the night and so we were taken up to some weird lodge and and given rooms and and sort of walking around during the day and seeing it it feels so performative because everybody in these five person groups feels like they need to be. Think about the pressure. Yeah. You have to have an idea by the end of this breakout session. Hey man, this is really fun. We're just sitting around like, where's your ideas? Come on. And that's the opposite of a Denny's, right? right? Where it's really like no deadline. I'll probably be here till 4am. Yeah. We're Uh, just eating, we're eating hot fudge Sundays at Bob's big boy. We're not even thinking about the idea. And that's when the idea gets you. Right. Probably the number one user of, Cocktail napkin. Speaking of speaking of drug fueled excess, is uh, playwright and screenwriter and now director Aaron Sorkin. He was a he was a bartender at the Palace Theater in the early eighties during while they were um, mounting La Caja Full, and you know, Broadway theater bartenders. It's like a stagecoach guard where you know for a fifteen minute intermission it's insane, but yeah. then you have an hour. You have the first act to sit and do nothing. And he wrote the entire, in, in his mythologizing, and he wrote the entire script of A Few Good Men, his big breakout theatrical hit, on cocktail napkin after cocktail napkin, because that's what he had access to as a bartender. He, no kidding. He, you know, he doesn't just get the one that comes with his drink. He he has a whole sheaf at the end of the night. And You would uh, think after a couple of days he would bring a notepad. Maybe he's such a struggling young playwright, he just likes the free paper. Right. Um, but that must have stuck with him, because uh, when he wrote uh, The West Wing, his kind of 90s Starry-eyed liberal political fantasy for uh, he just did it on Post-it notes the whole thing. (laughs) No, on that show we learn like midway through the show that the whole origin of the Martin Sheen guy running for president is a cocktail napkin from the Palace Theater. No, that would have been smart. I don't remember where they are. It's there at a hotel bar, and his campaign manager writes, um, "Let Bartlett be Bartlett," which is kind of the you know like this guy's the real deal. You know, this is how we turn a failing candidacy into a into a winning one. And that becomes right. kind of a talisman in the series. Like in the last episode, like the napkin is framed on air force one. And, uh, you know, it's really the, the napkin in this fictional universe, the napkin actually produces a leader of the free world, you right. know, uh, 
history changes even more than it did for the MRI or the Laffer curve. So, you know, we just want the we just want the ideas to be to be simple so that we can get them. It's so funny because these days, you know, we all wipe our faces with digital napkins and there won't be any napkins in the future. No, the, the I mean it's it's terrible. It's crunchy on your face. Yeah. Um but I always I always put my drink down on top of my phone. Beep boop boop. And that concludes the back of a napkin. Entry 090.LK1920. Certificate number 44181 in the omnibus. Futurelings. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram surely will all be uh, broken up by federal antitrust legislation. The inventors and CEOs of those companies will be in prison or worse, uh, dropped into the ocean, and there will be some other equally bad social media. And almost certainly on that equally bad social media, you will be able to find Ken Jennings still producing free content at Ken Jennings. And uh, the Omnibus Project will be archived at Omnibus Project in those locations as well. You can email us, which is a thing that will never die. E- will there ever be a replacement for email, Ken? I think so, because my kids don't email. They don't email at all? No. What do I, they do? They just text. Snapchat text, at one another? Text and Discord and... and uh discord right only fans at each other on the slack well you can still email us granddad boomers here at the omnibus project at gmail.com until email is no longer accepted currency um you can find other like-minded young people on discord at the omnibus futurelings group uh, and those people if you don't email that's where to go go to discord or reddit and then, I mean, basically, you can you can uh, you can tell who is on these futureling sites. It's basically an age, uh, like an age filter. Discord is going to be presumably the youngest group. Facebook, the most sophisticated one. Find the futurelings group that best suits you. Uh, you can support the show at Patreon.com/slash/OmnibusProject, where you would go and sign up for. The bonus content available there, including a monthly addenda episode, a full-length episode where Ken and I answer viewer mail. It's good stuff. It's nice. And then there are lots of other rewards, too, at Omnibus Project on Patreon.com. And you can send us real-life mail at P.O. Box. This Talk about things that won't exist much longer. P.O. Box the 5. The U.S. Post Office. <laughs> I hope it does. I hope so, too. I hope we're, we're propping them up with this thing we read every time. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Looks like you have some mail over there. Yeah, so you have to remind me, when we were talking about, when we were talking about cricket, uh, we also talked about disc golf for some reason. Was that the same entry? Probably. And you made the, apparently you made the suggestion that Seattle is the headquarters of disc golf and all the real big frisbee stars come from here i was talking about ultimate frisbee seattle is the ultimate frisbee superstar locale i can't speak to disc golf but i i i don't doubt I it i feel like we got people challenging both assertions online who's who produces more ultimate players are they going to say palo alto because i'll beat them <laughs> uh apparently enough people you must have you must have really been said something about disc golf because uh, two different people seem to have sent us 
uh, a disc golf starter. Oh, oh look set. at that! I like that. Jess- so, what we got? Two different disc golf starter sets. Yes, Jesse sent us. Let's see. Jesse sent us this one from Dynamic Discs. Okay. It seems like a very nice skill, skill level, level advanced. Uh, Do you feel like you're advanced? I'm skill- ready. I've how, thrown a few frisbees. How can it be starter and advanced? Um, and Jesse says, Seattle is not the headquarters of disc golf, nor do the big, big stars come from there. Okay. <laughs> Good to know, Where Jesse. do they come from, Jesse? Please take your daughter out for a round of disc golf. Well, now, wait a minute. He's just refuting it, but he's not saying where the disc golf champions come from. I'm assuming the disc golf champions are like stoner golfers, right? So they're probably from Arizona or Florida. Maybe they're just all around us. Maybe like any place can produce. Oh, and Elijah... Oh, wait. No, this was a coordinated effort. Elijah says, please enjoy these discs on your disc golf course course of choice. These are for Ken. I get streamlined discs. As Jesse Weiss has sent other discs for John. (laughs) I see. You know, I have a friend that works at REI who has A, a Subaru, and B, in the back of his Subaru, he has custom built an enormous rack to hold all of his different weights and sizes and shapes of discs for disc golf which apparently he plays at a very high level enough that he is enough that dedicated he dozens of different yeah, yeah and he's dedicated his trunk to uh to all of his different discs so based on that alone you know Jesse or what was the what was his friend's name uh, Elijah Jesse and Elijah should send me a picture of the back of their Subaru if they want to really hammer this home Seattle does have multiple good disc golf courses well not the city of Seattle, but the Puget Sound area right. has multiple courses. Anchorage so, uh, has one right in the middle of town. I'm going to, well, there's nothing else in the middle of Anchorage, right? Anchorage is just a suburb of Seattle. Don't write me. It's anchored by a disc golf course. That's mm. what anchors Anchorage. Mm. A lot of places have a mall. Anchorage has a disc golf course. Also a mall. Thank you, Jesse and uh, Elijah, for this uh, chance to, in middle age, take up the wonderful world of disc golf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this might be a thing that Ken and I get to do uh, to get away from our wives. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe for may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. 